Hello, my name is David Wright, and uh, I am just so excited to be here with you live wherever you are around the globe for this coming together event. And uh, I don't know how many people are joining us. I suppose we might find that out later. They may watch after the fact, and that's fine too. But I want to welcome you uh, and really just your courage to be here. Uh, I think that's a significant step. Uh, with where things are. So welcome, and we're so glad that you're here. Uh, the list of, of topics of open and honest conversations about so many things, homosexuality and sexual purity, ministering to individuals, abortion recovery, porn addiction, sex addiction, transgenderism, family healing, sexuality, and the church. These are all heavy and very deeply personal issues and topics that are oftentimes hard to talk about. Uh, and sometimes the harder question is, how does God fit into this conversation? Uh, can I hold on to my belief or view um, and any one of these issues at the same time? And how does that work? Uh, and so we're going to spend the next hour or so together talking about various things. And uh, I just want to begin with a word of prayer and ask that the Lord be with us during this hour. Dear Heavenly Father, we desperately want your Holy Spirit to be here in our midst. We pray that you will guide and direct in this conversation and this presentation, and that you will work in a way that we cannot. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it goes without saying that we live in a time of conflict. We see it all around us in our society, in our country, in unprecedented ways, in our school systems in government, and even within ourselves, there are conflicting ideas, conflicting opinions, conflicting thoughts about truth and what is right and what is wrong, what is okay and what is not okay. Uh, even this idea, is there such a thing as absolute truth? Or can you have what's right for you and I have what's right for me? And I was reading a story just this week in my morning time with the Lord that uh, maybe you're familiar with. I'd kind of forgotten about it. And if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to, to turn and follow along with me. I'm in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 1. And I feel like it speaks to some of these ideas uh, that we're talking about. So I'm in 1 Kings chapter 22. And... Uh, Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now three years passed without war between Syria and Israel. Then it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel. Now, this is oftentimes a period of the Old Testament that we get confused. We, we're connected with Saul, with David, with Solomon. But then there's a civil war among God's people, and they are divided. So now we have the king of Israel to the north, and we have the king of Judah to the south. And at the time of this story, we are four kings removed from that initial civil war. And so you have Jehoshaphat, who is described uh, in 2 Chronicles 17 and other places. But in 2 Chronicles 17, 3, it says, Now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father. He walked in his commandments and not according to the acts of Israel. Uh, because Ahab and, and Israel was, was doing quite the opposite. There were high places. In fact, remember Ahab and Elijah, the prophets of Baal. And so we have these two key figures here 
separated. And going back into 1 Kings 22, it says, uh, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel, which is Ahab. Uh, and verse 3, it says, The king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth in Gilead is ours, but we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And so, to put it simply, the king of Syria are the bad guys. Uh, the king of Israel, which is King Ahab, he wants Jehoshaphat to join him. And let's take this land back that is rightfully ours. And so Jehoshaphat, the king that's trying to do the will of God and so on, he says, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses are your horses. And then in verse five, it says, also Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire for the word of the Lord today. He wants to know what is God's take on this? Should we go into battle? Should we not? And oftentimes that was a huge piece of battle. You wanted to know what the prophet of the Lord said before we go in, or this could end badly. But it's interesting that what King Ahab says, verse 6, And the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go up against Ramoth Gilead to fight, or shall I refrain? Now we could be confused and think, now, these are the prophets of God. Well, they're not. The prophets of Ahab and Jezebel, you remember the prophets of Baal were 450. Then you have the prophets of Asherah, which are 400. So we get those clues from other passages. These are not godly prophets, but these are really pagan prophets that he goes to counsel. Then verse 7, uh, sorry, continuing the end of verse 6. And so they said, these 400 prophets... Go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. They said, you're good to go. No problem. And Jehoshaphat said, is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? Now, I love Jehoshaphat's persistence in, I want to know what God has to say. I'm not interested about all the prophets of Baal. I'm not interested in what the world has to say. I'm not interested in the popularity poll. I'm not so interested in uh, social media. I want to know what God has to say about this matter. Uh, and so we continue on, verse 8. So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is still one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, who we may inquire of the Lord. But notice what he says. But I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. I don't know if you can ever resonate with that. The idea of, I don't want to know what God has to say on this topic. I know what I want to do. And we are quick, I think, oftentimes, at least I am, I can't speak for you. I can be quick to go to the person that's going to tell me what I want to hear. That won't prohibit me from doing what I want to do. And that's the same idea that we see here from King Ahab. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say such things. He's still persistent. So then the king of Israel called an officer and said, bring Micaiah, the son of Elah, quickly. And so... That is done, and we continue on, skipping down to verse 13. And the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Now listen, the words of the prophet, with one accord, encourage the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them. Speaking of the prophets of 
Asherah, and speak encouragement. Say the right thing. Say what the king wants you to hear. Please don't disagree with us. And verse 14, Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And then he comes to the king in verse 15, and the answer comes back, go and prosper for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. He's not done. Um, <clears throat> verse 17, he says, you need to know, also know this. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. So the word from God's prophet is, you can go, you will be victorious, but the sheep will be scattered. Uh, there will be no master. There will be no leader. Ultimately, that means something will happen to you, king. This would have been um, a real pause, I believe. Uh, and in verse 18, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Why did we inquire of the prophet of the Lord? Why is he saying such terrible things and trying to bring about my demise and so on? I hate the prophet. I despise the prophet. I don't like the word of the Lord. So what does he do in response? We skip down. We're in 1 Kings 22. This is verse 29. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. They decided to go anyway. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your royal robes. Obviously, he feels like he could be a target. So he's going to disguise himself and go into battle and he's going to let the other king, let King Jehoshaphat be in all the, the royal garb. And he thinks that'll be a way that he can prevent the word of the Lord from happening, as it was said. And so that's exactly what they do. We read that they go into battle. Everybody sees the royal outfit of Jehoshaphat. They go to him. He cries to the Lord. Uh, the Lord delivers him in the sense that they see it's Jehoshaphat. They see it's the wrong man. They back away. Um, verse 33 is where it describes that when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, that they turned back from pursuing him. But then verse 34, now a certain man drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. This is King Ahab hiding out. A random bow is, is drawn and a random arrow comes and goes in between his armor and he says, turn around, take me out of battle, for I am wounded. And so they take him out, and he is propped up in his chariot facing the battle, but he dies in a pool of his own blood in his chariot. And it says, every man who is sitting, every man in his own country, fulfilling the prophecy of the Lord. I was reading that even just this week, thinking how quickly we can be in wanting to disregard God's word. You know, we read something and we say, wow, that's powerful. I like that. I'll take that. Then we read something else and we say, I don't like that. I don't like what that has to say. Um, I don't want to apply that to my life. I know I can be cunning. I can be crafty. I can hide. I can do things my own way. I can outsmart God. I mean, after all, God doesn't know what he's talking about. What's the big deal? I have a plan. But the reality is there's that random arrow that we don't see coming. 
that can find us, that can penetrate the cracks in our armor and can take us down. I know I've fallen into that trap more than I would like to admit. And there are too many times that I have moved forward without even wanting to inquire of the Lord and without even wanting to know what God's word has to say. But the reality is, whether we like it or not, is that anytime we disregard God's word, we do it at our own peril. Uh, God's word is important to us. Adam and Eve in the garden disregarded the word of the Lord, and it was to their own peril. At the time of the flood, Noah was preaching uh, for hundreds, you know, such a, a long period of time. Um, was it 150 years, something like that? That they disregarded the word of the Lord to their own peril. Uh, the children of Israel in Egypt, God said, put blood over your doorpost to protect you from this plague that will come, this angel of death. And some disregarded that to their own peril. Uh, we could even... And there's so many examples, but even the Pharisees uh, at Jesus' time, Jesus' own words, they disregarded at their own peril. And we know at the end of time, there will be people that heap up for themselves, teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. But again, will be to their own peril. Sometimes we think that God is in this posture against us. When really the reality is he gives us his word for us and for our best good. The real question is, do we believe that? Deuteronomy 6.24, I love this verse. If you haven't read this verse before, mark it down. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Why did God give us the commandments and the statutes? Why do we need to fear the Lord? Because it's for our good always. Do we believe that? You know, there are many places in God's word that we find his ideal. And originally I had entitled uh, this talk, God Invented Sex. I'm afraid I've, I've changed that quite entirely. Um, but we do have God's ideal there in Scripture in countless ways, in countless areas and avenues and how we deal with people and, and situations and, and so on. He gives us his Ten Commandments. Uh, and even as this seminar largely deals with issues on sex and sexuality, there are underlying principles that apply to all aspects of life. But these verses, Genesis 1:26, then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, uh, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and so on. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. Part of God's ideal. We can move to Genesis 2, 24. There fell for a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, God's ideal. Uh, and we could unpack that and we have this whole week and weekend to unpack those ideals more. Uh, but here we have the plan, the prerogative of God, what is for our best good, for our best joy and happiness. And I have studies and I thought about sharing them of, of the individuals 
that have the most satisfying sex lives are those in a, a married, committed relationship. Uh, beyond that, it's those that are married but are in a relationship with God have even better sex lives. And there's a lot of secular uh, studies that show a lot of those things that uphold God's ideal uh, for how we can find true joy and happiness and fulfillment. Uh, how God created sex for not just procreation, but for intimacy, to understand the intimacy God longs to have with us, uh, and also certainly for pleasure. But the devil hates that, working tirelessly to take us away from God's plan, his ideal in whatever way, in whatever avenue. He has a counterfeit for everything. Um, and how often do we say, you know, I don't want to know about God's ideal. I don't want to know what the scriptures say. I don't want to know what the prophet of the Lord says or what God's word says. They never say something that I want to hear. So I'm just going to throw it out. And I believe every time that we do that, it's to our own peril. Um, I'm trying to look at my time here and be careful of our time. Some of you may be thinking in regards to God's ideal and where you are at this moment. Um, you may say, well, this wasn't fair. This was done to me. I didn't ask for it. Uh, this wasn't something I chose. You made me this way, God. Uh, I'm simply trying to be true to myself. Don't you like honesty? Don't you want me to be genuine? Uh, and after all, my sexuality is my business. And this has nothing to do with my relationship to God. This is separate entirely. And so with that attitude, oftentimes we can despise certain passages of Scripture. We can despise the condemnation. We can despise those that seek to guilt and shame us for just being who we are. And in that, we can think we can find peace. But maybe you've been around long enough with some of these issues that as you try to make all of this fit, all these pieces of the puzzle, you're having a hard time, and the peace seems to be alluring. Um, but friends, I just want to assure you that this weekend is not about guilt. It's not about condemnation. Uh, I certainly am not here to condemn you. Uh, when the woman was caught in adultery, what did Jesus say? He says, neither do I condemn you. But that's not what all that he said. He said, go and sin no more. This is not about condemnation. God was not about condemnation, but about salvation and transformation, showing a better way. And sadly, in this day of social media, the devil has so warped God's ideal and has upheld this idea that, that their way is best when oftentimes it's to our own peril. I like another verse, John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John 10, 10. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, to destroy. But I have come that they might have life, and then they might have it more abundantly. I believe our creator knows how, because he formed and fashioned us, he knows how we can truly experience life more abundantly. And he longs to give that to us. I like 2 
Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That is the idea of our Heavenly Father. He wants to recreate us to make us new creatures that we may have life more abundantly. And others may be sitting there saying, yeah, but pastor, you don't know. You don't know where I've been or what I've done. Uh, certainly there is no place for me. You're talking about those that maybe have bit their toe in, uh, but I've gone in headlong. I don't fit into this. I like Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. How many? All. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So we've all gone our own way, but the Lord has laid on Jesus, him, capital H, the iniquity of me, of you, of all of us. And so, friends, there's provision made for all if we're willing to accept it. One of the stories that is one of my favorites as we kind of enter into this time together is Luke chapter 15. And I want to read the first 24 verses of that. But it's the the story of the prodigal son. It says, then all the tax collectors, I'm in Luke 15, verse 1, then all the, sorry, I'm not in verse 1. I'm in verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of my goods that falls to me. Essentially, he's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. But since you're not, give me all of my inheritance, and I want it now. And the father, loving his son more than his land or his reputation or his bank accounts or uh, 401k, whatever it might be. So he divided to them his livelihood, it says in verse 13. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal or wasteful living. And so I imagine he had a good time, but the money ran out. And that's oftentimes the way sin is. It looks so good on the outside, and maybe there's a, a period of joy in, in the midst of it, but then we're left feeling alone and empty and used and no sense of purpose or direction, no peace, we're anxious, we're depressed. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. Verse 16, he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. We learn later on in the parable, if you will, that he has spent his money not just on living large, but on harlots and the whole thing. He's done the whole part of party life. But now everything has just hit rock bottom, and he's here with the pigs, the unclean animals feeding swine, and even their food looks good. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, kind of this, hey, wait a minute. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? Now, notice he's a son, but he's thinking about his father's hired servants. There's a difference between the two. The son sleeps in the big house, and he 
the servant sleeps in his own servant quarters. The son eats with his dad. The servant packs a lunch. The son has an inheritance. The servant is simply a paid employee. The son has a voice at the table. The employee only has a voice when he's asked. And so there's a security in the relationship of the father as a son, but as an employee, it's all performance-based. And any time, the employee can be let go. Now he's thinking in terms of an employee. I have many, my father has many hired servants, yet I perish with hunger. Verse 18, I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, and there's two parts here, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Part one. And then in part two, he says, make me like one of your hired servants. This idea of make me a hireling, make me or allow me, if you will, to earn my way back into your favor. And I imagine even though God has his ideal, he can be quick to discredit his ideal, to not want anything to do with his ideal. And then we might find ourselves in a place that we say, hey, this is not what I bargained for. And we want to come back, but we think we need to be like that of the servant and earn our way back in. And so he rose, verse 20, and came to his father. And this is the best part of the story. When, it, when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran. Old men in the Bible don't run, but this guy is hiking up. His, his long garments, if you will, and he runs and he falls on his neck and he kisses his son. Can you imagine that moment? He's out there scouring. He sees a walk, a gate that looks like his son. Hey, honey, could it be? I believe it is. In the midst of that emaciated, uh, you know, dirty, poor garb. I mean, he left in a, a Mustang and now he's coming back in, in, in rags, but the father still recognizes the imprint of his son and he runs and he throws himself on his neck. And I imagine as they embrace and he's holding his son and they're going back and forth and back and forth, the son has a speech that he wants to give to his father. And so he says, uh, let's see. Verse 21, and the son said to him, while I imagine they're still in that embrace, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. All true. That's only the first part of his speech. And what was the second part? Make me like one of your high servants. He doesn't even get to that part. The father interrupts, and he says to his, his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. I want to cover his nakedness. I want to cover his shame. I want him to be shown as as my son put a ring on his hand reinstating him as a son and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry for this is my son who was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and they began to be merry i love that picture of the father that is welcoming back his son and the Old Testament sanctuary starts, many animals were sacrificed. All of those animal sacrifices were symbols of Jesus Christ who would come to be sacrificed for our sins. And here, the one that devoured the father's livelihood on harlots, the father kills the fatted calf for him. Jesus died for you. And I believe today Jesus is saying, I died for you. 
so that the one joined to the harlot, to the joint, to gambling, cheating, stealing, whatever it is, doesn't matter, can be justified. This is the love of the Father. This is grace. This is amazing. Go and kill the fatted calf. And as touching as this story is, I believe it still pales in comparison to show us the love of the Father. And the efforts he goes to that don't cease, the outstretched arms with which he welcomes again and again, the erring one, the rebellious one. It's the father who's touched with the helplessness of the little child subject to rough usage. But he says, you're my son. You're my daughter. Welcome home. Some would say, well, this is cheap grace. To which I'd respond, well, good works are never the root of our salvation. They're always the fruit of our salvation. I think of an illustration I heard years ago of <clears throat> during that time in our history as a nation, during the slave trade, which was a, a terrible time in our history, unfortunately. But there was a black man put up on the auction block, strong, robust, young, and the bidding began. And under his breath, the slave was saying, I will not work. And the bidding went higher and higher and higher. I will not work until finally sold to the man in the back. But I will not work. He says, all right, I hear what you have to say. Come with me. Let's. Let's start our journey. So he puts him up into the wagon with him. He's taking him back to his new home. And he keeps telling his new master, I will not work. And he says, you know, I think you're going to like it here. I have a nice little cabin I've set up for you. I put some neat features in there. And sure enough, they pull in and there's curtains on the window. He's never had curtains on the window before. There's a rug for his feet on those cold mornings. He's never had that before. He has a nice soft feather bed. He's never had that before either. And I believe the slave's name is Joe or something like that. He says, Joe, this is all for you. He says, it's beautiful, but I'm not going to work. And the master turns to him and he says, Joe, there's something you need to know. I didn't buy you so you could work. I bought you so I could set you free. And Joe broke down in tears. And he said, Master, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. That to me is the gospel. It's the love of a father that is so undeserved and so lavished upon us, so gracious towards us in the midst of our filth, but covers our nakedness with his own robe, forgives us of our sins, kills the fatted lamb. A father's love is incredible. I don't know exactly who I'm speaking to. This is one of the challenges of this. I'm really speaking to myself, trusting that you're there. But maybe perhaps some of you are a father. Maybe not yet. Uh, for those 
that have not yet been a father can be a little bit hard to describe. Uh, but it's an experience that is life-changing. First, there's that excitement that your wife is pregnant. And then there's that nine months of waiting and anticipation. And then the day arrives. And it's so special. It's something even spiritual. I, I got emotional at the watching this new life come into being. I've been a father four times. Um, and this is incredible. And the joy and the love that you instantly feel towards this little helpless being. And you just find yourself thinking, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And you hold them close and you cradle them and you feel such a connection to them and how their finger grips your hand so tightly as you feel their soft skin and you let them nap on your chest. And then you start to wonder, how will God use them? Will they be a pastor or a teacher or a businessman? Will they contribute to their local church? Will they be involved in the medical field? What gifts and talents will they possess? And so you have dreams naturally for your child. But ultimately, my biggest dream for my children was always simply that the Lord would use them for his glory. And then as a parent, you watch them grow and mature and you celebrate every milestone. You know, the first smile, the first name they call you, the first I love you. The first time they crawl, the first time they take a few steps and walk and run and shoot a basket and hit a baseball and ride a trike and mow the grass, water ski, drive a car, and the list goes on. And every step as a parent, you're there to encourage and to celebrate and to cheer them on and to let them know that you are so proud of them. In fact, I have a, a picture of my family. Uh, if you want to share that on the screen, if you have that available. But with our youngest son, James, it was different. When at six months, we started to see how he was not hitting those milestones. He wasn't sitting up. Uh, he wasn't crawling. He wasn't pulling up at the coffee table. And when the news came that it was a result of this rare and fatal illness known as Alexander disease, we were devastated. James, the youngest one there with his... Knees curled up. When we got that news, the pain, the heartache that I felt as a father, that he wouldn't grow, he wouldn't mature as we hoped. And for our first three, the time just passed so quickly. Oftentimes, I remember saying to my wife, I wish we could just freeze them in time at this age, this cute, innocent, beautiful age. But for James, that was his agonizing reality. And we just watched as his friends and as his children his age just leapt past him again and again and again. Another child would be born. They'd just shoot right past. And for any father, as the provider of their family, as a parent, you do everything within your grasp to fix it. You want to go to any doctor to pay any amount, drive any distance, try any therapy or diet method or means that might make a difference for your child. That could in some way alleviate the effects of this disease. I think there may be another slide or two. Um, yeah, there's James and his cute little smile. <clears throat> I couldn't help but think early on of another father and the divine miracle of forming his children from dust. And instantly he falls in love with his creation.
He adores them. He loves them. He has great hopes and dreams for them. Jeremiah 31.3, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 29.11 speaks of the plans God has for you and for me. Plans not to harm us, but to give us a hope and a future. And then we read in Zephaniah 3.17 how the Lord, your God, rejoiced over you with gladness. How he will quiet you with his love. How he will rejoice over you with singing. And just think of, of the Father kind of patting and doing that dance and singing in the night. That's the picture of our Heavenly Father that loves, adores us. Singing us lullabies to quiet us in the night with his love. But then this awful disease of sin enters the picture. And it stunts and retards the growth of his children. And it significantly mars the plans God has for his kids. And it prevents them from hitting those milestones. And over time, causes them to lose the skill sets even that they have gained. And I imagine it pains the heart of the father as he's deeply hurt and grieves for his children. Yet we see from our loving Heavenly Father, we see God doing everything, everything, everything to deliver us, His kids, from the disease of sin. He gives the truth in His Word. He sends prophets again and again with warnings and directives for our good. He gives us His laws, a divine protection from the ravaging effects of the disease. But again and again, the remedies are pushed aside and belittled and mocked and ridiculed. We don't want to hear what the Word of the Lord has to say. It always says, Evil for me, we say. Until finally the love of the Father compelled him to send his only begotten son to take on the full effects of the disease in his own body. To make him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. And what pain the Father must have felt. What gut-wrenching pain when the human race rejects and demeans and ridicules and blasphemes his son to the point that they will nail him to a tree. There's another picture of our family. This one is on June 6th. Uh, James died on June 8th of this year. Surrounded by his family. And when those final moments came, there's a pine box, a simple pine box that I made for him. We held him right there in our living room. We all took turns. We tried to keep him comfortable, which I think we were able to do. We sang hymns and he died in the loving arms of his mother. And we placed him in this pine box on June 8th. And there he is surrounded by his cousins. We just tucked him into bed, if you will, with his teddy bear and his blankie. He always had a car in his hand, always on his left side with a knee pillow between his legs. And then we went up the hill on some family property that we have in Andrews, North Carolina, and dug the, the hole ourselves. Somebody took that picture of me with a pickaxe. There was plenty of help to be certain. But we dug the hole and we placed James in the ground um, and we said our goodbyes um, on a rainy June afternoon.
Any of you who have lost someone close knows that going out in public after something like that is hard. In fact, it's rather nauseating. Uh, we received a thoughtful note uh, that was given to our to Elizabeth and I, our family, that compared the loss um, to a bomb going off, but no one seemed to recognize that anything had happened. And there are times that you just want to scream. You're out there and people are in the middle of commerce and all the rest, and you just want to scream, don't you get it? Don't you know what's just happened? My son, my son is gone. How can you go on with business as usual? And I imagine as they forced Jesus to carry the cross and took him outside of town to be crucified with criminals at the human garbage dump, as the rest of the world went, went, went on with their petty lives of selfish gain and pleasure and self-promotion, perhaps God himself wanted to cry out, don't you get it? Don't you see what's happening? Don't you see my son? my son, whom I love so dearly, that I'm giving up for you. Why? Because I love you so much. Because you're my child, and I don't want you to suffer with this disease anymore. Because, you see, a cure has been provided, and his name is Jesus. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we are saved. And it's available to all. Second Peter chapter three is the heart cry of a father as he says, I don't want any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And I imagine God is crying even now as we live on the knife edge of eternity. As the world is crumbling all around us, as we see society in a moral freefall, as we see hate and division on every side, I see God crying out to us today saying, don't you get it? Don't you see what's happening? Don't you see what I've given for you? Please don't reject my son who died that you might live. And you might be quick to say, that's not me. I received Jesus, to which I'd say, praise the Lord. But are you growing? Are you developing? Are you maturing in his grace? Or are you missing spiritual milestones that's heartbreaking for your Heavenly Father to watch? I had a woman in my office just recently. Just last week we were talking. She'd been in the church. She got disenfranchised. She left the church. She says, take my name off the books. I don't want anything to do with it anymore. And we've been talking over the last almost 10 years. And she finally said, of her own. She said, I, I want to come back. I want to be rebaptized. And she says, something is different this time. She's gone through some major things in her life recently. She's had to trust God in ways she's never had to trust him before. And she is surrendering in ways she never has before. And she says, something is different. I said, with all that you're going through, as you continue to surrender, even in what seems like a small thing or something you don't understand, as you surrender that thing, you're going deeper with God, deeper with God, deeper with God. And yes, it's different than you've ever had an experience before because you're surrendering. Since having Jesus is not merely a transaction in which I have my ticket for eternity. Yes, he promises us eternal life, but he promises so much more. 
I already told you, John 10, 10, I've come. They might have life and have it how? More abundantly. John 15, 10, 11, keep my commandments and abide in my love that my joy may remain in that your joy may be full. Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Luke eleven thirty three. 33, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Friends, our heavenly Father longs to give good gifts, the best gifts to his children, to give us the Holy Spirit, pour it out beyond measure, to bless us beyond our capacity to receive it. The question is, are we willing to surrender to, to it, to yield to it, to, to follow it? Or do we say, no, I have my own ways. And I think I can work this out just as well by going this direction or that direction. God doesn't know what he's talking about here. He certainly doesn't know what he's talking about there. Friends, are we growing and developing and maturing in his grace, in his peace, in his assurance, in his love day by day? Or are we atrophying? That's been the gift of James to Elizabeth and I and our children. Through this experience, we have all grown as a family. We've grown individually. Our perception of life has changed. We've learned to trust God more completely. And in doing so, he gives us his peace. And when I lose my peace, I'm reminded there's something I need to surrender yet again. But he gives us his joy, his assurance, his strength. And through this experience, life has become deeper and richer and more meaningful and more purposeful. Somehow life is more real and less trite or fake or plastic. And no, my handicapped son never was a pastor or a teacher, a businessman or medical professional. He never was a leader in his local church. He didn't fulfill, honestly, any of the dreams I had for him. But I believe in his short little life of eight years, his impact on us, and how we relate to others, how we do ministry, how I prepare sermons through him teaching us unconditional love, the impact of a smile, a genuine, heartfelt, joy-filled smile. He very well may have had a bigger impact on the world than I ever could have dreamed for him. It's it. God's word says a child shall lead them. And that was, has been the case for us. One of my favorite authors says, God never leads his children otherwise, and they would choose to be led if they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purpose which they are fulfilling as co-workers with him. And while that can be hard to imagine in the challenging situations of life, I have to believe that's true, that someday God will show us the larger purpose of James that we could not see, and we will praise him for it and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Your ways are higher than mine. And what that purpose will be, I don't fully know. But what if it's the salvation of his father, the salvation of his mothers or sisters or his brother? What if the situation that was so challenging for him and for all of us was the answer to my own prayers that our family circle would be unbroken, 
of revealing our Laodicean lukewarm condition and to help pry our grubby little hands off the things of this world. If so, his sacrifice was worth it. And for the father whose son left the comforts and joys of heaven and came down to this dark and evil planet and unselfishly ministered and encouraged and healed and taught life-changing truths in response was rejected, spit upon, nailed, naked to a tree. But if it meant salvation of some boy, some girl, some man, some woman, that because of that overwhelmingly challenging darkness, others could live in the light of eternity as a heavenly father and see the end from the beginning. I think he looked down through the time eternity and said, it's worth it. It's worth it. Friends, I never hid from James. I never waited for him to get his act together and conquer the disease by himself. But instead, as his father and mother, we did everything, everything, everything we could. And friends, our Heavenly Father is not hiding from us. He's not waiting for us to get our act together, to conquer the disease of sin by ourselves, but rather our Heavenly Father is doing everything, everything, everything to save us. Jesus says to the Laodicean church, which is us, it's me. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. Friends, he's not hiding. He's knocking. Longing for entrance into our hearts. Longing to give us the best of what life has to offer. And when you open the door and let him in, when you give your heart, your life, your hopes, your dreams to Jesus, the hardships and challenges will not disappear, but you will be given strength from on high to meet those challenges. It doesn't mean you'll understand every outcome, but you'll be given peace that God holds the final outcome. It doesn't mean everything will go according to your plans, but you realize that God's plans and purposes will prevail. And so, no, God is not hiding from us. He's knocking on our heart's door. He's looking, looking, looking for sons and daughters to come home. And so in the last few moments that we have, I just want to make a simple appeal. God's word and his directives are a love letter from a heavenly father that loves us so much that sees this world marred with sin, with pain, with heartache, with people doing things to others that should never be done, with the effects that are ongoing, with the challenges that that brings to who they are and what they're supposed to be and leaves them with more questions than answers. But friends, I believe there are answers in God's word. And I believe there in his word, we find a God that is not arms crossed, condemning, guilting. But there's a father love. With tears streaming down his cheeks. Looking on the wall for his son, for his daughter to come home. 
And at the first look, he doesn't stand with arms crossed. He better say the right things. He better do the right things. He owes me big time. No. He runs. And he's running for you and for me. And he longs to embrace us and reinstate us as his son and his daughter. Are you ready to come home? I believe there's a lot of good information that's going to be shared. But all of us are in agreement that the purpose of this whole seminar is not just about information. The Bible has a lot of information. Information is helpful. I like information. We Google all the time to get more information. But ultimately, this seminar, ultimately God's word is about a father who longs to be in relationship with his kids. is calling his kids home. He said, I formed you. I fashioned you. I made you. I know what's best for you. I know it will harm you. I know it will give you peace and assurance and comfort and purpose. I know it will give you the opposite of all those things. And so I've written to you this love letter. That down through history, you'll know how to have life and have it more abundantly. And so again, I just want to make the call. Are you ready to come home? Maybe you've been out there long enough to know that all the things you thought you were going to find, all the joy that it seemed to be, didn't come to fruition. And maybe now you're left feeling emptier than when you started off on this journey. Maybe you're feeling alone, embarrassed, any number of things. Friends, you're not alone. Don't be embarrassed. All of us have fallen short. All of us. There's not one that's here on this chat. There's not one around the globe anywhere. Without Christ, all of us are hopelessly lost. But there's not one that can't come back to the Father and feel that embrace that holds you so tight and says, welcome home. If you want to come home today, I just encourage you in the privacy of the space, wherever you are, just raise your hands and say, Lord, you know everything about me. You know every choice I've made. You know exactly what I was doing just yesterday. But you love me. You died for me. And you're calling me home. And you may not fully know what that looks like. You may not know exactly what the next steps are. But in this moment, you just want to say, Lord, I want to come home. If you'll have me as your son, as your daughter, I want to come home. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you see the hands that have been raised across the country, over the oceans, wherever they're watching, whether live, whether after the fact, 
We believe that your Holy Spirit is in this moment, wherever they are. And Lord, I want to pray for those with their uplifted hands. Whether they're uplifted now, whether they just uplifted them for a brief moment, that doesn't so much matter. The point is that they are longing to come home. And in our humanness, we want to have that second part of the speech. Lord, let us come back as, as a hireling, as a servant, to, to earn our way back into your favor as we show that we can accomplish and do good things and bring in profits and clean ourselves up. But Lord, you don't let us finish a part of our speech. And so we just simply, humbly say, Lord, we've sinned against heaven and against you. We're no longer worthy to be called your son or your daughter. And in that moment, you take us back and you say, it's okay. Here, let me cover your nakedness. Let me reinstate you as my son with the ring. Let's kill the fatted calf. Jesus has died that you may live. Now let's journey from here. Lord, thank you for these decisions. Thank you for these commitments. We give ourselves to you. Lord, we know our, our promises are like ropes of sand, but we are giving you our will and we are praying to your, the power of your Holy Spirit that you will do a work in us that we so desperately need. Thank you for the security of this moment, for the security of your son, for eternal life. And Lord, guide us to that more abundant life. From here forward, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.